Man, it's so amazing to think about coming home and after um, the events that we witnessed at the parade this week, um, it's good to be home in the house of the Lord. And um, as my family and I were at the parade and experienced a lot of fear and a lot of grief and um, chaos, all I wanted to do was get home. And all I wanted to do was get my crying kids and my shaking kids home. And so to be able to come into our home, our spiritual home right now, and to be able to look forward to our spiritual home in heaven um, is the hope that we have this morning. Um, So I just want to open in prayer and I want to pray for our city and our community and for you all um, as we all experience collectively um, some trauma this week. So let's pray together. Um, Heavenly Father, we believe, Lord God, um, that what the enemy meant for evil, Lord God, you can turn it for good. And God, none of us um, should have seen what we saw and should have experienced what we experienced, but we did. And so we say, come Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would heal families that lost loved ones. I pray that you would heal people that are still recovering in the hospital. God, I pray that you would heal our hearts, Lord God, as we grieve for our children and grieve for our city and our community. And God, I pray that you would make us stronger through this in the name of Jesus. I pray that you would heal in the name of Jesus. God, I pray that you would give us power in the name of Jesus. I pray that you would give us hope in the name of Jesus. I pray that you would give us redemption in the name of Jesus. And that today when we walk out of these doors, that we would be different people. That you would literally in this time that we have gathered together, not because of preaching, not because of anything that anybody does on this stage, but because of your power, Holy Spirit, to meet every person in this room. God, I pray that we will walk out of these doors differently today, redeemed, revived, renewed, restored, God, rejuvenated by being at home. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. I have uh, have one more little prayer that I want to pray. And just as we were worshiping, you can can sit down. You don't don't have to stand up for this whole thing. Man, y'all are like Chiefs fans. You're going to stand up for the whole whole thing. I'm, I'm down. Let's do it. Um, I did, I did kind of get an impression on my heart that as we were singing, that, that as we sang lyrics about sickness, that there's, that there's somebody here that singing that lyric was hard for you to sing today as you struggle with your own sickness or sickness in your family. So, um... If that's you, you don't have to raise your hand, you don't have to stand up. I'm just going to pray for you right now. If that song lyric just bothered you and you're, you're frustrated with sickness and you're wondering when God is going to show up, I just want to pray for you real quick and then we'll, we'll dive into our message. Um, Holy Spirit, um, God, uh, when there's sickness, God, it, it's just so frustrating. And when we're enduring through pain and suffering, God, it's frustrating. So for any of my brothers and sisters in this room in particular that are experiencing that frustration right now and waiting on you to answer, waiting on you to heal, waiting on you to comfort God, I pray that you would let them know that you see them and you feel their frustration and you feel their pain and that you are with them and that you do, in fact, heal. We love you, Jesus. Amen. 
So last week, you guys heard Pastor Christian um, preaching through um, a series and finishing up a series called Consecration, and we're going through the book of Acts. I should probably tell you who I am. I'm Marcellus. Hello. (laughs) Um, I'm one of the teaching pastors here. I've been out of the pulpit for a few months, um, had a few little things going on, um, but glad to be back with you. Um, I spend most of my time as the chaplain for the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, My wife and I, for the past seven seasons, have been pouring into the players and the coaches and and wives and girlfriends and and things like that. And we also uh, do a lot of ministry in the the urban core of Kansas City and so just really glad to be, again, I'm, I'm glad to be home with, with you all and, and to preach God's word. And so today we're actually talking about the power and the pressure of the Jesus movement. As we work through the book of Acts, um, we're going to be focused on chapter three and four in this series called The Power and the Pressure of a Jesus Movement. And the thing about um, Jesus's movement that we see in the book of Acts and as we see um, God's disciples and his apostles carrying out his power and carrying out his will, um, we actually get to see God at work. God um, continuing the work of Jesus through people who believed in him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in particular, one of the things that I, w- I want to focus on today is how we celebrate the power of God. And when you see God moving, when the Holy Spirit shows up, like it, 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 you don't have to ask any questions. You know that God is in the room. You know that God is redeeming. You know that you're gaining victory. But a lot of times when we experience that victory and we experience that power, we also experience resistance. We experience a very real enemy who comes against us celebrating what God has done things that we've prayed for, things that we've longed for, things that we've acted upon that God is doing, man, the enemy a lot of times wants to resist that. But the enemy that we fight against is nowhere close to the power of the God that we serve. They're not equals. They're not the same. Our God is the God of God, the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, Jesus of Nazareth. When you call upon his name, when you plead the blood of Jesus, there is power in that name. We experience a celebration on Wednesday because of victory. And like, if you live in Kansas City, this has become our norm. Like we're experiencing victories. Like we went to Buffalo on the road. We beat the Buffalo Bills. We went to Baltimore on the road. We beat the Baltimore Ravens. Man, we were underdogs in the Super Bowl and the Lord gave us a victory in the Super Bowl. And then we come back to the, to the parade to celebrate great things that have happened. And there's that spirit of celebration. And we get used to that. Um, one, of our, one of our Kansas City Chiefs players, our long snapper, his name's James Winchester. Last year, he and his wife, Emily, were trying to coax their son, Jace, who's five years old. They were, they were trying to coax him to come to a playoff game. And you guys know how cold our playoff games are here in Kansas City. And they're trying to get Jace to go to the playoff game. And they're like, Jace, you should go to the game. And he's like, no, nah, you know what? I'm going to wait till the Super Bowl. <laughs> in his little mind, he's just like, oh, we go to Super Bowl. So, like, I don't, I don't have to go to playoff games. Like, I'm just going to wait till the Super Bowl, and that's when I'm going to start going to games. And um, in our Christian walk, sometimes, like, when you go to a church like Journey where you pray often, where you're on mission often, like, you get used to the victory that God provides. Uh, but when we, were on that par- when we were at that parade on Wednesday, 
we notice that not everybody was there to celebrate. Like Super Bowl wins and big name stars don't bring redemption. We were reminded that we live in a fallen and a finite world, that people are fallible, that there's people hurting in our city who need the help in the redemption of Jesus. So as you are praying powerful prayers for your family, for your community, for your neighbors, for your own life, as you're longing for redemption and seeing redemption, Acts chapter three and four remind us that we are at war. We fight against an enemy that wants to bring darkness where Jesus wants to bring light. You've probably heard many scholars and pastors talk about the analogy of World War II and D-Day. So if you've watched Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan, I love like all the World War II stuff. On D-Day, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, effectively we had won the war. But it would still take time to squash out the enemy, although we had won. Once, the, once Germany lost that front, once they lost that beach, it was only a matter of time until Germany was completely a defeated foe. But until the, the victory was complete, the enemy was still going to make noise, was still going to try to take lives, and was going to fight tooth and nail to act like it hadn't lost. And many times that's how our spiritual battles are. Jesus is victorious. He beat death. He resurrected. He sits on the throne. He ascended to heaven and he sits on the throne in all victory and power and glory. And now as believers, we walk in victory as the enemy tries to resist that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, it says this. It says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession. It's like a parade. And through us, he spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Verse 15 says, For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We smell like something as believers. Some people smell us as a good thing, and some people smell us as a bad thing. Verse 16 says, To some we are an aroma of death, leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life leading to life. So I want to ask you, are you prepared to win spiritually, but lose socially? Are you prepared to win spiritually, but lose socially? Where you see God advancing things in your life, but maybe people don't view you the same way in your neighborhood anymore. You're not as cool as you want to be. You're not as connected as you want to be. Are you prepared to win spiritually and lose relationally? Maybe some of the decisions that you're making to follow Jesus cause people to not want to be in relationship with you anymore. Are you prepared to win spiritually and lose financially? Where God is calling upon your finances, your resources to make an impact for his kingdom to announce the inauguration of Jesus as the king of the world. That happens a lot of times to us spiritually. So as we talk about the power and the pressure of Jesus' movement, 
We're going to talk about, we're going to focus today on the power of, of a Jesus movement. So the first thing that we're going to talk about is prayer and how prayer is a big part of, of the power of Jesus's movement. The next thing we're going to talk about is perspective. The third thing that we're going to talk about is how we give people Jesus, our prized possession. And the fourth thing that we're going to talk about is presence. In Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, it says this. It says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. And at once his feet and his ankles became strong. So he jumped up and started to walk and entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. So the first point is we think about prayer. <clears throat> this is regular spirituality that produced supernatural results. Pastor Christian talked about last week how the disciples were meeting regularly together. They were eating together. They were praying together. And then you get results. You see God moving. And in Acts chapter 2, we see God saving thousands of people after a sermon that, that Peter preached. But what did Peter and John do after God had already moved powerfully? It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and they're going back to pray. It's very regular. It's very normal. Like some of you are praying prayers that God has not answered yet. It feels mundane. You feel like, man, God's not hearing me. God's not answering. God's not moving. But our regular, mundane, often prayers are what actually provide irregular and powerful spiritual movement. Like some of us, sometimes we get so used to the formula. We go to church and we take notes and we pray prayers, but that's actually doing something. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46 through 47, it goes on to say, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. What the, what's listed here is very normal. It's like we're getting together, we eat, we fellowship together, we encourage each other, we pray together regularly, and God moves. Like what you're doing spiritually actually has an impact, even if it feels like it doesn't. Some of you moms at home, you're praying and you're cleaning up. 
Some of you women at work, you're praying at your desk. You're praying on the way to meetings. We're praying as we drop our kids off at soccer. We're doing all the little things, and those little things actually add up into irregular, supernatural, powerful results. In James chapter 4, it says this. It says, therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Those are, those are simple things. It says, resist the enemy, and he has to run away from you. The enemy is more powerful than us people. He's not more powerful than God. But the Bible doesn't say, man, pray this special prayer and position yourself towards this direction and put this special towel over you. He says, resist the enemy, and he will flee from you. He has to run away. On Wednesday, when my family and I were at the parade, you know, we, we were celebrating, listening to all the players' speeches. I mean, just to see our city join together in celebration like that is a powerful, powerful thing. And towards the end of the parade, I heard the shots ring, ring out. Now, I come from a neighborhood um, in a part of our city where I hear that often. So we just stayed relaxed. I took my son to the bathroom. We started seeing police um, start to move quicker and move in certain directions. And then you felt the chaos increase incrementally every few minutes to the point where I had my family hiding in a bathroom under a sink, all four of my kids crying, 16, 14, 12, and 9, all of them crying, all of them shook up, police with their guns drawn. It was a very crazy situation. The crazy thing about that is that in the world that we live in today, our kids know what to do in those situations a lot of times better than us parents do because they talk about it in their schools. They talk about how to resist. And one of the things that if you ask a kid who's gone through this at their school, they've gone through active shooter drills in their schools, what, what is taught is anything that you can do to resist is going to help you. It's going to save a life. They say throw books at them, throw chairs at them, run away because it can actually save a life and it can save your life. And you think about, man, throwing a book or throwing a chair, like that doesn't make that much of a difference, but it actually does. And, and it's very similar to what it says in James 4. All you got to do is resist the enemy and he has to run away from you. You resist him in prayer, he has to run away from you. In 1 Peter 5, it says, um, you know, be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. It says, resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. We were reminded Wednesday that we are, in fact, in a spiritual war, that no Super Bowl celebration is going to win us a victory, but our prayers do. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Sometimes we feel like, man, I've been praying and praying and praying and God's not doing anything. He's not saying anything. I'm sick of praying. But actually, every single time that you pray, it is a promise from Scripture that God draws near to you, that he is with you, that he hears you. You might feel like, man, God wasn't with me and that was just another time that I wasted in my prayer closet. That was just another time that I wasted praying about this situation. But God draws near to you when you pray. The second thing that we're going to look at is perspective. Peter and John had a perspective on what God can do. In Acts chapter 3, verses 2 through 4, it says that the man was lame from birth, and he was being carried there. 
It says he was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. Peter and John had a perspective on this man that nobody else had. They saw something in him that nobody else saw. They saw something in him that he did not see in himself. Why? Because although the text says that he was born lame, that's not the idea that God had for him before he was born. Some of us identify with our addiction more than we identify with the fact that we were made in the image of God. Many of us identify with our sin, our past, our mistakes, our personality more than we identify with the fact that God says, I knew you were before you, before you were born. In Jeremiah uh, chapter one, God says to the prophet Jeremiah, hey, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart as a prophet. God has ideas for us. God has a perspective about us for our redemption that is beyond what we were born into. All of us were born into sin, but that's not God's idea of who we are. God has an idea for us, and he redeems us through Jesus. In John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, there's another story of healing when Jesus healed a man. It says, as, as Jesus was passing by, he saw a blind man who was blind from birth. Verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Many people will look at somebody who's lame or blind or sinful or addicted as if that's their identity. I don't call anybody homeless. I, call, I say that there are people who are experiencing homeless, homelessness, but they are not homeless. There's many people that we are called to help, called to love, and that when we look at them, we have to imagine a redemption that God has for them that is beyond just throwing money at a situation, that is beyond just helping in that moment. But can we imagine them walking into the doors of this church? Can we imagine them as God sees them? Can we imagine them as a father, as a mother? Can we imagine them in a redemption of a way that God can use their life that is far beyond what their addiction looks like, that is far beyond what their sexual orientation looks like, that is far beyond what their monetary situation looks like? God is like, I see something bigger in this person, and I want to do a redemption that brings them back to the idea of why they were born in the first place. They weren't born to be lame. They weren't born to be disabled. They were born to be a part of the kingdom of God. There is a fuller, more powerful redemption that Peter and John saw in this lame man who could not walk. I think about the life of Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was a man who was enslaved uh, during American slavery. 
And if you read his biography, he escaped slavery and he gained his freedom. Um, He was a very well-educated man. He was a great writer. He was a great speaker. And he was a person that worked alongside people that didn't look like him for the abolition of other slaves. So he gained these brothers and sisters who were also abolitionists, people who were not black, but they were white, that wanted to free slaves in America. One of the families that Frederick Douglass worked with who were abolitionists, Frederick Douglass fell in love with their daughter. And after they fell in love, they got married. And these abolitionists, although they wanted to see black folks free in America, were not okay with Frederick Douglass marrying their daughter. Their view of redemption was too low. They didn't imagine him as being at Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) We want you to be free, but I don't know if I want you to have my grandbabies. This family, although they wanted enslaved people free, they disowned their daughter when she married Frederick Douglass. They wrote her out of their will, and they wrote her off. Their idea of redemption was too low. When you look at yourself in the mirror, when you look at other people that you desire for God to work in their life, are we asking for things that are too low? When you go on mission trips, when you give your money, is your imagination too small for what God can do in a family, in a city, in a person's life? Or do we only see them for their addiction, for their sexual orientation, for their current political position? Or do we see them with the eyes of God? Of like, I I think God can do way more in their life than even what I believe is possible. So what did Peter and John do? They gave this man something that was much better than he asked for. In verses five through six, the man turned to them, it says in verse five, expecting to get something from them. But Peter said to him, he says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. I'm gonna read that again. So the man turned to them expecting to get something from them. But Peter said to him, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. This man got a miracle. He had ankles that were bent. He had never walked. His muscles were atrophied. And he laid there every single day and people only saw his affliction. People were only able to give him money to get through the day, to get some food. But what Peter and John saw was an opportunity to do what their master had done to move in the power that their master had given them, to offer this man a deeper redemption and a deeper healing than he or anyone else expected. They gave them him 
their prized possession. I can give you Jesus. And that name and that person is real. And he's alive. And that name might not get you a lot of friends. That name, proclaiming that name might not get you a promotion at work. It might not make you relatable to your neighbors. But that name is our prized possession. That person is our prized possession. Jesus of Nazareth is real and sits on the throne of heaven with all authority and with all power and with enemies under his feet. Not only did they give him Jesus, but they gave him their presence. And this is powerful. They gave him their presence. Acts 3, 7 says this. It says, then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up and at once his feet and ankles became strong. They looked this man in his eyes and they touched him. There's so many people in our world that physically need to be touched. I think it's 21 seconds. A good hug is supposed to last 21 seconds. A good, decent hug. And it takes 21 seconds when you're touching another human being for dopamine to be released in your brain and that you feel positivity just from physical touch from another human being. Peter and John were not aloof from this man, but they actually touched him with the power of Jesus. As parents, there's times when your kids need to be touched, when you need to bless your kids, when you grab them and you tell them this is who you are. You are loved, you are home, you are safe. There was a time a few years back when for a few months, my wife and I, we were just off. Like our, our conversations were just off. We weren't seeing eye to eye. We weren't connecting very well. And so I was just convicted to every morning before I left the house, I was gonna raise my wife's chin. I was gonna put both of my hands on her face. I was gonna look into her eyes and remind her of who she is and tell her who she is and tell her that I loved her. And it was this connection that brought rejuvenation and power and God even more so in a deep way in our relationship and really rejuvenated our connection in our relationship. Hands-on, loving, physical touch ministry. God gives us presence to be with people, to be in close contact with people who are broken. In John chapter nine, verses six through 11, after Jesus was interacting with this man that was blind, it says that after Jesus said these things, he spit on the ground and he made some mud from the saliva and he spread this mud on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man left and came back seeing. His neighbors who had, been, who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? 
Some said he is the one. Others were saying no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, did the same thing that God the Father did in Genesis when he picked up dirt and he formed man in his image. Jesus picks up dirt and recreated this man's eyes and he touched him and the man was healed. The word says that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And my question is, is who does God want to recreate with your presence, with your prayers, with your touch? That's what God is in the business of doing, recreating people, remaking people, renewing people, restoring people, redeeming people. That's what Jesus did through Peter and John when they went up to this man and looked him in his eyes and touched him and this man was healed. This is a literal thing. This man was not walking. He had no opportunity to walk and Jesus still does these things. In Acts chapter three, verses seven through 10, it says this. It says, so he jumped up and he started to walk And he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. Like this man went from begging at the gate to walking into the temple. What would it look like to be sitting next to people in church that you've been praying for? What would it look like for you who have never met Jesus to walk into this church confident that you know Jesus? What would it look like to start a business with somebody who you thought could never be redeemed financially? What would it look like for your family members to be healed? What would it look like for your neighborhood to be healed, restored, redeemed, and made new? People who were born lame, people who were born as sinners, people who were born with addiction, people who were born with struggles that we don't know anything about, people who were born into families that vote different than you politically, But all of a sudden, they're walking into the doors of the church and you're sitting next to them worshiping God together because God did a work in their life. Because God did a work in your life. Is that the kind of perspective that we have? Are those the kind of prayers that we're praying? Is that the kind of presence that we're offering so that we can all celebrate in a way that says Jesus is King, He is Adonai, He is Lord. He still heals. He still redeems. He still answers prayers. If God doesn't do what we just read in Acts chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, what are we gathered here for? 
We're coming here for no reason if God isn't changing lives. So many times we sit in these chairs as a group, but really you're just here by yourself. And you get in your car, pull in your garage, and we don't see each other. But it's not just for you to come and sing some songs and to hear a word for you. It's about what is God doing in this world? Where does God want to heal? Where is God leading me? Where does God want me to walk in the power of the name of Jesus, in the authority of God the Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit? Where is God leading me? Where do I need to be healed? Looking at yourself in the mirror and knowing that Jesus is bigger than your addiction. Jesus is bigger than your sickness. Jesus is bigger than the distance that you think is between you and God because God is not far away from you. When you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. For some of you, that might be the first time, today might be the first time that ever happens in your life where you've never felt anything that would resemble a closeness to God. Some of you, this is your first time ever coming to a church and you're wondering what this is all about. And this is all about you knowing the God of the universe who made the clouds, who made the grass, who made the sun, who literally created everything. And he's saying, I can make mud and I can make you see. I can pick you up and make you walk. You didn't think you could walk. You didn't think you could be redeemed. You didn't think you could be changed. You didn't think you could have a heart that's warm towards God. But now he's recreating your heart. And I pray that today for a lot of you will be the day of salvation. When you're saved from unbelief. When you're saved from praying small prayers. When you're saved from praying big prayers and God rescues you to pray even bigger prayers when you're saved from your perspective of other people and God widens your imagination to see his view of the world and his view of people and his view of redemption. This is the power of a Jesus movement. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for seeing us in a way that many times we don't even see ourselves. And God, I pray that you would redeem today. I pray that you would restore today. God, I pray that you would rescue our hearts from our sin and from our world. I pray that you would bring us home to a relationship with you, Jesus. I pray that as we draw near to you, that we would know that you draw near to us. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.